This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Monday, too little, too late. Documents reveal repeated security issues at a hospital in outback New South Wales. And slurs, dog whistles and outright lies. The dirty tactics at play during the election campaign. They're just hoping to appeal and attract a small percentage of people who might like their message, which then gives them enough power at the ballot box to do deals and preferences, which then might you know, work out for them in some other way, shape or form. First up today, as many people around the country commemorate Anzac Day, the Defence Minister is warning we may need to prepare for a new conflict in our region. In a blunt Anzac Day message, the Defence Minister Peter Dutton says the only way to preserve peace is to prepare for war after China signed a security pact with the Solomon Islands. David Lipson reports. The Defence Minister says the government is determined to ensure peace continues in Australia and the region. The only way uh, that you can, you can preserve peace is, is to prepare for war and to be strong as a country, not to you know, be on bended knee and uh, be you know, weak. That's, that's the reality. Speaking on Channel 9 at the conclusion of a local Anzac Day service, Mr Dutton stressed people like Hitler haven't merely been consigned to history. We have in President uh, Putin at the moment uh, somebody who's willing to kill women and children and I think Europe's really been startled by uh, what's happened there. It's a, a replay in part of what's happened in the 1930s And you don't need to over-egg it. Uh, The Chinese are, through their actions, through their words, uh, on a very deliberate course at the moment. And uh, we have to stand up with countries to to stare down any act of aggression. He's referring to the Solomon Islands Security Pact signed with China and announced last week. The details remain opaque and the implications uncertain. The Solomon Islands Prime Minister, Manasseh Sogavare, insists it won't lead to a Chinese military base but Australia remains unconvinced. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison yesterday made clear it would be unacceptable. I share the same red line that the United States has. After sending a high-level delegation to the Solomons, the US said it would have significant concerns if a military installation was built and that it would respond accordingly, but mentioned nothing about any red line. The last time the US officially used that term was in 2012 when then-President Barack Obama confronted the threat of chemical weapons being used by the Assad regime in Syria. That's a red line for us, and that there would be enormous consequences if we start seeing movement on the chemical weapons. But when sarin gas was used to kill more than 1,400 people, the US resisted a military response. In international relations, it's exceptionally serious language which is almost always associated with a threat of some kind of military response. Richard McGregor, a senior fellow at the Lowy Institute, says the Australian Prime Minister's use of the term is extremely rare and much stronger than the language employed by the United States. I can't ever recall an Australian Prime Minister using such direct language. It's really code for a military action of some kind. The Australian statement or Mr Morrison's statement goes well beyond where they just said that the US would respond accordingly. So Mr Morrison's gone much further. Just what would constitute a military base remains undefined, and the consequences, if such a line is crossed, have also been left unsaid. Labor's defence spokesman Brendan O'Connor, speaking on RN Breakfast, 
says he's seeking more information. We need to be briefed on what the government's contemplating beyond just those terms. The words used obviously sound uh, relatively heightened. Um, so we need to know more from, from, I think, agencies about that. Mr O'Connor said the signing of the Security Pact represents a failure of government policy. And when asked if he shared suspicions, Chinese money may have changed hands to make it happen. It's clear that they don't follow the same rules, so it may well be the case that they've acted in an improper manner in terms of convincing the Solomon Islands uh, to enter into such an arrangement. Federal Labor's promising half a billion dollars in funding to strengthen services for veterans of wars past if it succeeds at the upcoming election. Whoever wins will be responsible for keeping Australia out of future conflict while ensuring it's ready to fight if needed. That's David Lipson reporting there. Well, for the first time in more than two years, many traditional Anzac Day events have returned to full capacity across the country. Hundreds of thousands of Australians have gathered at dawn services and also at morning marches with more commemorations rolling into the afternoon. Our reporter Gavin Coote is at Sydney's Hyde Park amongst large crowds. Gavin, good afternoon. This is the first Anzac Day free of major COVID restrictions since the start of the pandemic. What's the turnout like? Yeah, it's Sally, it's the kind of Anzac Day you would have expected to see before the pandemic. We've got tens of thousands of people here in, in Hyde Park and around Sydney lining up and watching people march. And um, after a couple of years of really effectively Anzac, be, uh, Anzac Day being in hiatus, you know, people had to commemorate on their front lawn or their driveway. It's really quite special seeing people once again here. We've got a lot of veterans, elderly veterans, who understandably would have been quite reluctant to um, come along maybe this time last year. Uh, they're all here once again um, and multi-generation people here wearing their medals and getting photos with, with young children. Uh, it's really quite special to see. And the march that just happened, um, it's all sort of wrapping up now, but people are now gathering at the Pool of Remembrance and also around the Anzac Memorial. And uh, really, after a couple of years of a very subdued uh, you know, commemorations, it's, it's quite remarkable to see everyone back here again. And Gavin, you've been talking to some of the veterans. How do they feel about the return of these full-scale commemorations? Well, Sally, a lot of these people haven't actually been able to get to events in the last couple of years. There have been caps on attendance. Many of the after-March events at RSLs have been either cancelled or, or very limited numbers. And many of the people I've seen today, uh, including some members of the Vietnamese community and the Vietnamese veterans associations, they live out in the suburbs in the west of Sydney and they had to keep it quite local for a couple of years. So to be able to come along today in the, the main whole of city event has been quite special for them. I saw a few other veterans as well in the more recent uh, activities uh, in Australian conflicts and uh, they also feel really incredibly humbled to be here um, after what has been really quite a, a subdued uh, two years. Actually it's really humbling to see the amount of people that have come here today to show support for veterans and um, myself as a veteran I, I feel very humbled that they've um, had this much support uh, particularly after having this many people um, you know, come out here after such a period of you know three years we haven't had a, a show out like this uh, we haven't had the ability to for me it's um, very moving has it been hard to be able to sort of properly observe Anzac Day with, with COVID restrictions? 
Uh, certainly a bit sad, you know, like uh, generation like us anyway, but uh, we still contact you know, each other personally. But uh, last year, you know, we, uh, we joined the march, but uh, only a limited number. But uh, we're very happy because this year, you know, we uh, normalize you know, our activities anyway. It must yeah. feel nice just to be out there marching again. Yes, that's yeah. true. That's veterans there speaking to Gavin Coote. Now to the latest in our series of reports on security concerns at Burke Hospital in Outback, New South Wales. The World Today has obtained documents under Freedom of Information which show repeated security breaches before student nurses were robbed and threatened at knife point on January 25th this year. New South Wales Health says it's committed to the safety of patients, staff and visitors, but the Nurses' Union says health officials have been too slow to act. get quite emotional when I talk about our members out at Burke. Tracy Coit is an organiser with the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association. She says some of the staff at Burke Hospital have reached breaking point. I've had many a telephone conversation where myself and the member have been in tears, hearing the raw emotion of those nurses and midwives. It breaks my heart, it breaks my heart. You're about to hear excerpts from New South Wales Health Incident Reports, which we've obtained under Freedom of Information. The documents tell the story of the months before intruders armed with knives broke into the student nurse accommodation in late January. It begins two and a half months earlier. On the night of the 13th of November 2021, a patient smashes the front door of Burke Hospital and threatens staff. Front doors damaged when kicked by violent patient. Police called. Security risk as door no longer secure. Awaiting installation of security screens. Risk to staff. Just two weeks later, on the 28th of November, police are called again when a mental health patient threatens staff just before midnight. Verbal and physical aggression began damaging waiting room, breaking secure glass in secure door between waiting room and staff station. Four weeks later, on December 29th, a thief enters the hospital and steals a patient's mobile phone. A review finds that internal and external doors were not secured and lights leading to the corridor were turned off. Ten days later, on the 8th of January, intruders enter the hospital grounds at around 2am. Attempted to gain access to multiple staff units. Stole staff members' car keys and staff fob. Stole staff members' car and drove through the hospital gates. Police notified. Security fob deactivated. Staff member offered alternative accommodation for rest of evening. In response, New South Wales Health engages security guards to patrol from 8pm until 6am. But that doesn't stop another attack. Two weeks later, in the early hours of the 25th of January, intruders get into the hospital compound and threaten several student nurses at knife point. Home invasion in the student accommodation. Three intruders carrying knives forced entry by smashing window pane in the rear entry door. Student life threatened with knife. Intruders took wallet, car keys and mobile phone. 
Nurses and Midwives Union official Tracy Coit says the violence leading up to the attack should have been a warning to authorities that health workers at Burke were not safe. I do think New South Wales Health could have acted a lot quicker. It should never have got to the point where there was a knife involved. I can't imagine how traumatic that must be for them. We asked Western New South Wales local health district for a response. They gave us a statement. Prior to January 25th, 2022, Western New South Wales LHD conducted a full security review at Burke Hospital and the on-site accommodation. Additionally, the district security consultants and the New South Wales Police conducted a further security audit. New South Wales Health says security has now been upgraded, including guards 24-7, additional police patrols and improvements to alarms, sensor lighting, CCTV, security screens and doors. Tracy Coit from the Nurses' Union says while the underlying youth crime in Burke is complicated, health officials must do more to protect hospital staff. It certainly is a complex issue. There is no one easy answer. We don't believe that they have done enough in a timely manner. It frustrates me, it makes me angry, it makes me sad. All of those feelings hit me when I look at that timeline. Local community, police and sporting groups are stepping up programs to engage young people in the town. Last week, Deputy Premier and Police Minister Paul Toole Regional Health Minister and Mental Health Minister Bronnie Taylor and Minister for Agriculture and Western New South Wales Dugald Saunders visited Burke. SafeWork New South Wales has inspected Burke Hospital, but its interim report has not been publicly released. Its investigation continues. And a full statement from Western New South Wales Local Health District will be on our website shortly. You're listening to The World Today. Emmanuel Macron has won a second term as French president, promising to unify his divided nation. Macron held off a challenge from the far-right populist candidate Marine Le Pen, who holds anti-immigration, anti-Islam views and has expressed support for Russian President Vladimir Putin. Macron is the first French president in two decades to win consecutive terms. His win has been met with relief from some European leaders. Rachel Mealy reports. Waving French and European flags, crowds gathered at the base of France's best-known national monument, the Eiffel Tower, to celebrate Emmanuel Macron's victory. I'm very happy. It was Macron against Le Pen, this man says. Emmanuel Macron arrived to address the crowd. After five years of transformations, both happy and difficult, and exceptional crises, on this day a majority of us have chosen to trust me to lead our republic for the next five years. In the end, the poll was convincing. Macron won 59% of the vote to Le Pen's 41%. But it was a narrower margin than the last election. Emmanuel Macron acknowledged that many had voted for him only to keep Marine Le Pen from office. I know that the anger and disagreements that led many of our compatriots to opt for the far right to vote for this project must also be addressed. President Macron admonished his supporters when they booed at the mention of Le Pen's name, telling the crowd his challenge as president was now to represent all of France. 
I am no longer the candidate of a party, but the president of everyone, he says. For her part, Marine Le Pen says she'll keep up the fight. The French are showing tonight a wish for a strong counter-power against that of Emmanuel Macron, for an opposition that will continue to defend and protect them, she says. Marine Le Pen says with 40% of the vote, the result represents in itself a shining victory. Congratulations rolled in for Emmanuel Macron from across Europe and around the world. Australia has had an awkward diplomatic relationship with France of late after the Australian government backed out of a deal for French submarines. But today, Prime Minister Scott Morrison extended his congratulations on Twitter, saying it was another great expression of Liberal democracy in action in uncertain times. He wished Mr Macron well and said France was an important partner to Australia in the Indo-Pacific. Dr Roman Fatih is a senior lecturer at Flinders University. He says the fight's not yet over for Mr Macron, who needs to secure a majority in the French Parliament at another election in June. He says he'll have to adapt his policies to attract the votes of the moderate left. So in the coming weeks, he may appoint more personalities, so to speak, from the left or people that are well-liked in France in order to secure as large vote as possible for his MPs running for the campaign for June elections. But in a sign of just how difficult bringing France together will be, protests have already rung out on the streets of Paris and Lyon after Macron's victory was announced. That's Rachel Mealy reporting there. We're back home now and political advertising often gets nasty during campaigns. As expected, the clause have already come out in this election. It's a particular problem in Australia because there are no laws here to ensure that political ads are factual. Catherine Gregory takes a look. During the 2019 federal election, the fight for the seat of Warringah in Sydney's north was the centre of many controversial political ads, slogans and tactics. There was this infamous ad by left-leaning political activist group GetUp, taking aim at the former MP and Prime Minister Tony Abbott and his views on climate change. Look, I think you'll find that the science isn't settled on that. But in the political jungle, things move quickly. The 2019 election saw the emergence of what some may say is the conservative answer to GetUp, Advance Australia. Here's one of its ads. They are imposing their private agenda on Australia. Advance Australia claimed GetUp was behind the rise of independent Zali Stegall, who ended up winning Warringah. GetUp used to keep their socialist agenda hidden, even from their own members. But now and it seems have... similar tactics are returning. This time, though, Advance Australia is taking on the issue of transgender politics. Liberal candidate for Warringah, Catherine Deves, has come under fire for some of her Twitter posts, where she likened her push to stop transgender people from competing in women's sports to standing up to the Nazis, and also described transgender children as surgically mutilated. I have been very chastened by this process. Catherine Deves spoke to SBS last night to explain her side. I recognise that trying to prosecute arguments about complex, nuanced and difficult subjects, it should not take place on a platform uh, that propagates offence and division and hurt. 
going forward, I will be conducting myself with in a dignified and respectful fashion. Over the weekend, Advance Australia put up moving billboards in Warringah featuring Zali Stegall's face saying that's transphobic, juxtaposed to images of swimmers Dawn Fraser, Emma McKeon and Emily Seabom with a slogan saying women's sport is not for men. It appears to be an attempt to paint Zali Stegall as a woke politician in contrast to Catherine Deves. A spokesperson for the Liberal Party says it has nothing to do with Advance Australia's campaign. While Swimming Australia has threatened legal action because Advance Australia didn't ask permission to use the images. They've achieved their objective, which is to get people to look at it and to talk about it and talk about the issue. Dr Andrew Hughes specialises in political marketing at the Australian National University. We need something where, when the election's announced anyway, at least, at the very least, that there's a clearinghouse for these sort of ads. Let's take a step back and have a look at what the rules are, if any, for political advertising in Australia. There are no rules, really. You can say what you want. There are basically very few restrictions, but when they cross the line into another area of law, there are actually teeth in that area of law, for example, intellectual property. Over the weekend, the Coalition accused Labor of a racist and dishonest scare campaign against Liberal MP and Hong Kong-born Gladys Liu, who won the Melbourne seat of Chisholm in 2019. The ad on social media platforms says, what do we know about Liberal Gladys Liu? Dr Hughes says regardless of where the truth lies, it's all getting very messy. I noticed um, Penny Wong said, no, they're all fair questions. And that might be true. They might be very fair questions. But again, they're going after the person. So they're attacking the candidate. Labor stands by the ad, but a spokesperson for the Liberal Party says it's a dishonest ad and won't comment any further to avoid giving attention to what it calls racist messaging. That's Catherine Gregory reporting. Finally today, Antarctica has challenged some of Australia's greatest pioneers, but sadly one of the last links to the golden age of scientific exploration has died. John Russell played a crucial role in establishing Mawson, one of the longest-running research stations on the icy continent. Matt Bamford has this report. It's one of the most inhospitable places on Earth, but in 1954, John Russell made Antarctica his home. John Russell was there on a mission, along with nine others, to establish Australia's first permanent presence on the continent. To find permanent base, you've got to have bare rock, you see. There's no bare rock. It's usually 3,000 feet of snow and ice, which comes down to the sea and it falls into the water, you see, and hunks, but there's more coming along behind it. He described the challenge last year to ABC Radio Brisbane. It was a goal he'd had since he was a boy in England. Fellow Antarctic expeditioner Trevor Luff says pictures from Ernest Shackleton's epic voyage sparked John Russell's lifelong obsession. He wrote a note to um, to Lady Shackleton asking how could he ever get to the Antarctic. So she invited him around for afternoon tea. And she told him the era of sail and then the era of steam, they're finished and it's now diesel. You must become a diesel engineer. Years later, after migrating to Australia as a young diesel engineer, John Russell achieved his dream. In 1954, he landed on the icy shores to build Mawson Station. Freezing temperatures and fierce gales were an ever-present hazard. So it was uh, drilling into rock and uh, and setting uh, steel steel posts into, into rock so it doesn't get blown away. I imagine uh, if you're working in those conditions in construction, the uh, the weather, the wind would make it quite dangerous. 
very dangerous, yeah. And it's, it, is, it is so so uh, fast, it's uh, over 100 kilometres an hour at the best of times around Mawson. Just to, uh, to make uh, concrete, to do a porous, a porous slab, you have to actually boil the water so the concrete doesn't freeze rather than set. That's only one of the many, many, many uh, <laughs> hazards of putting up uh, buildings in the Antarctic. The job kept him away from his family for 15 months. Writer Emma McEwen, who is also the great-granddaughter of explorer Douglas Mawson, says the base was a turning point in the history of Antarctic exploration. It was the beginning of the mechanised era where things like uh, ice-breaking ships Um, snow vehicles, aircraft and um, more technologically advanced scientific equipment was available. So there was a move away from the one to two year privately funded uh, expeditions. She says people like John Russell have contributed to a proud tradition of Australian exploration in the southern frontier. Australia has been such a big part of it, in fact at the forefront of all of that and I think we can't compete uh, on other platforms but we are you know in terms of Antarctic exploration we're right there at the beginning. John Russell passed away in Brisbane last week just shy of his 102nd birthday. That's Matt Bamford reporting. That's all from the World Today team for this Monday. I'm Sally Sara. Take care. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.